All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. I apologize that we started a little bit late. I got to be honest, I was a little selfish. Johnny and I were having a wonderful conversation in the backstage area, and I wanted to, I actually wanted to keep her all to myself and uh, continue our conversation, but promises were made, and here we are. So tonight, as I just said, we have Assistant Chief Johnny Reddick. She is a retired uh, Assistant Chief, like I said, from the California Highway Patrol. And that agency has roughly 11,000 sworn officers, but don't, don't listen to me about it. I'm going to bring Johnny on. She's going to tell you all about that, what she's done, and what her journey's been like. So we're going to get Johnny to come up on the screen here. Johnny. Greetings. Doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. <laughs> so I just apologize to everybody that, um, that we're a little late because you and I were so deep in our conversation that I almost... Yeah. Uh, I almost forgot that we started at 7 Eastern Standard Time, but here we are. So, Johnny, please, first of all, thank you for joining us. On, on uh, I know it's tough on the West Coast time. You know, it's 7 o'clock my time, 4 o'clock your time, which is still very much part of people's workday normally. But um, I appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story. So could you tell us a little bit about you and your journey? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, first of all. And yes, I was enjoying the conversation that we were having. Um, and for, for a minute, I thought we were already filming, but oh, well. Um, so yeah. Um, and, and just to make a small correction, um, the California Highway Patrol has over 11,000 employees total and over 7,000 sworn members. And so um, it's still a very large, multi-billion dollar organization. Um, but uh, the professional staff make up the total of 11,000. So um, everybody hardworking, everybody having um, a huge part in the machine that I call it. So um, for me, a little bit about myself for, you know, those that don't know or didn't, you know, Google me. Um, I retired after 29 years with the California Highway Patrol and I retired as an assistant chief. And um, that was in the end of 2017. And for me, uh, N4N policing, that was less than 1% um, achieving that rank for women and women of color. So, you know, I'm very uh, blessed to have reached that rank in my 29 year career. Um, I was also very blessed to uh, retire. I was not feeling well in my last um, year or so. I was projected to continue to promote, but I just health wise, I was not doing that well. And so I chose to retire and um, in retirement, I was like, well, what do I do now? Because I didn't want to just uh, not continue contributing to the industry. So I decided to adjunct teach. Uh, so I adjunct teach uh, locally at our community college for um, entry level cadets at our regional post academy, which is our uh, commission on peace officers and standards training academy. And then I also adjunct teach for the University of San Diego in the southern part of our state in Southern California for um, a graduate program, uh, law enforcement and public safety leadership, where I am part of adjunct faculty and teach uh, law enforcement and public safety executives across the country that come into the program for their master's degree. And so uh, I do that and I love it and enjoy it. And then I also have JL Consulting Solutions where I do coaching and consulting and speaking engagements on leadership and mostly around policing and community collaborations. Um, even though I do some corporate, I've found that my my sweet spot or uh, my passion and my blue ocean, quote unquote, <laughs> is truly in policing. Um, that is where it has been for you know almost thirty years, and it's also where I feel um, I'm still called to do the work. So um, that's a little bit about me. I don't want to hog up all the time there. Oh, well, it's all about you tonight. Tonight is your night. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about JL Consulting. Um, how long have you been, have you had that? How long has that been up and running and how are things going for you? Yeah, so um, I was doing a lot of leadership development training uh, with the organization for probably 10 or 15 years of my career. I taught first line supervisors, middle managers, um, commanders. And I was also doing study groups for promotional preparation for, you know, exams to help people promote. And I was probably doing those for like longer than the leadership training. And I loved it. And after I retired, I was still getting calls to, you know, help people in their processes. So I decided to go into business and LLC myself. 
And I started helping not only people in my department, but also and other agencies help with their promotional preparation processes, because it truly is important on how you um, prepare and study for exams, not to just, you know, um, game the system, but to um, build your knowledge and get an understanding of how to build your leadership. And so, you know, I created a system and, you know, actually, you know, I have a book that's on Amazon that helps people kind of follow that guideline, but I felt like they needed me too. So um, I do that specifically with people. And then the leadership aspect was something that I found in our organizational culture um, with the CHP was we needed more at the line level versus just in the supervisory and above ranks, which is where almost your leadership training starts to begin. And so I felt in my consulting business, I would be able to really tap into helping, you know, identify and develop ways to build leaders on the front end, which is even coming through the academy, all the way to officers and forward. So I've kind of cultivated and worked on some collaborations to just kind of do that. And then I have, um, I smile because I love it so much, but also having opportunities to do presentations or speak about just resilience and being able to not only survive, but thrive based on different cumulative traumas and experiences that I've had on the department, but also my personal journey. Um, you know, we don't all just arrive somewhere. It, it takes something for us to get to, you know, where we are for most of us. So I share my story and um, yeah, so that's kind of about the, the business. And then also uh, I have a book coming out. Um, the book. Next What's the book called? <laughs> the book is called Black, White, and Blue, Surviving the Sifting. And it is about my leadership ascension through um, law enforcement, but it's wrapped around my personal life uh, from a broken childhood, um, my biracial status, um, a divorce, a line of duty death of my officer, a loss of my you know, mother, a transition of my life as a woman, um, transition of my life as a leader. And um, so it covers quite a bit, but out of it, the intent is to be able to help or heal someone else who can see themselves through my journey. And you don't have to be a woman or a woman of color to experience that. It's really about our humanity. And that's what I've hopefully created um, in this memoir that, um, like I said, will be out at the first part of June. That's a lot. You're a very busy woman and you started going down the road of your career. So let's talk about that. So bring us through um, how you, how did you end up in law enforcement in the first place? What, what drew you? <laughs> um, so I will tell you that I have nobody in my uh, family that was in law enforcement. Uh, I was raised by a single mother and um, you know, we, she struggled financially. We lived in shelters or sometimes we live with family um, sometimes we just lived. <laughs> and so I had no, you know, inkling of what law enforcement was like, but um, I grew up on shows because I love TV shows like on ships, <laughs> you know, Ponch and John. And um, so I grew up on shows like that. So when I graduated high school, um, I got a job as a clerk typist and I was 18 years old and I was going to the junior college and I could do that and chew gum, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I did a little bit of modeling thinking, well, you know, why not try that? I still kept my typist job, okay? Cause it was with the county. And then um, right around 20, 20 and a half, there was a huge ad in an actual physical newspaper, which many people don't get probably anymore. The one that's actually in print. Sure. And, and it had an ad for the California Highway Patrol that they were hiring. And in my mind, I'm 20 and a half. I was thinking, wow, working alongside the beach, I'm going to be hang gliding. <laughs> I'm like, I met all the qualifications, which were very minimal. Um, and so I applied. And literally six months, seven months, I was in an academy. And I, that's the first time I had to live away from home for the entire time. And the academy was difficult. Um, you know, there was a lot of people that were paramilitary. I was not paramilitary. And I was very young, um, but I graduated and they shipped me out to my first command, which was nowhere near my home. It was in Southern California and I lived in the Central Valley. So it was three or 400 miles away um, to a brand new place where I was supposed to go out and patrol. 
And I was 21 years old. And that's how my career started with the Higher Patrol. And I remember the ad very specifically, not only the, the criteria for qualifying, but what I remember mostly is what it told me it was going to give me. And it told me it was going to give me a retirement. It was going to give me benefits for vision. It was going to give me benefits for my health. It was going to give me benefits for my dental. I didn't have that growing up as a child with my mother. If we weren't on welfare or we didn't have money, sometimes she would work. She was a registered nurse. So when she was working, she was working. But when she wasn't, she wasn't. And so I had none of that called security. I had none of that called benefits. And that really resonated with me on, on what that is, not really knowing at 20 and a half or 21, but I knew that it meant that I would be able to take care of myself. And that was really important to me to, to have something like that. I mean, that's amazing to be 20 years old, tw sorry, 20 and a half years old, <laughs> and to be able to think about things like retirement and think down the road. Because I can tell you, when I was that same age, I couldn't think of anything outside of a week in advance. All I could think about was, where's the next party at? What time am I working out? And, and if it was football season, who are we playing on Saturday afternoon? <laughs> and um, so yeah, no, I mean, I, I didn't know. Crazy. I didn't know like what it meant meant. I just knew that it meant I was going to have these things, not knowing until I matured. It's a maturation process, right? Sure. But I knew it was more than going to be a paycheck that I was going to get every time. And again, I won't tell you because it's kind of embarrassing how much dental work I had to have done my first year on the department because I didn't have dental. You know, we didn't have the ability to go to the dentist and get things done and all that stuff that I had so much dental work done that first year because I had benefits. I hear you. As you can see, I skipped the braces. So I, <laughs> I didn't do braces, but I had a whole lot of other stuff going on. <laughs> so now you're on the job. You're a brand new officer out of the academy. What is that like? How are you received? And, and uh, was it what you expected? Um, honestly, it, it was nothing like I expected. I had no idea. I was, you know, I had played basketball in high school and a little bit in college. And so, you know, I was tough enough and I was physically fit enough. But nobody told me about, you know, the the mental toughness that I was going to need to have. Nobody told me about the emotional stability I needed to have. We didn't talk about things like emotional intelligence back then. Um, so it was very, the rigor of the paramilitary academy was very difficult. I will be just very transparent with all of your viewers that I wanted to quit and go home. I don't know how many times. And it was tough because they were, you know, name call. They were name callers back then. I mean, they do it now. They're just softer on how they do it. But they were name callers. They didn't. They didn't care. They did not care. They were to break you down and build you up. That's what the academy is for, and and it's designed to create this so you can be safe and you know you can learn how to go out there and meet the world. That's going to be much, you know, more unkind than your instructors are going to be in the controlled environment. And so it was really hard. And uh, women were a minority in my academy class. In fact, we came a week before men arrived at the academy so they could teach us how to change tires so they could yell at us and break us down and we'd be gone by the time the men arrived, which several did. Um, they took us out to the range because most of us had never shot a gun before and that sent some women home. Um, and it was a place of uh, rapid maturation, I guess, in the sense of I didn't know what I didn't know until I got in there. And but the beauty is we're all people. So what happens, which happens in most places, is good people step forward to help see you succeed. And then there's people that they're not thinking about you. They are just thinking about themselves and they're like, good luck to you. But there were really good people, both male and female, who helped me to understand how to make my bed, you know, how to be on time uh, for drill. You know, when you're lagging on the run because you're not giving 110%, maybe don't give 110, why don't you try to give 75% and see how that does and build up to 110. And then you can get in early, then you can get to breakfast, then you can get to class, then you won't be falling asleep. And all these little things that they were helping me do 
created big things for me to be able to graduate and actually um, become an officer. And then when I went out on the road, it was in the late 80s. And so women had only been on the California Highway Patrol since 74. And so there were men that didn't want to ride with women. Um, and, and it wasn't like, oh, you don't think they don't want to ride with you. They were like, hell no. Oops, sorry. I don't know if I can say that. They were like, you're good. You're good. <laughs> they were like, hell no, we're not riding with you. And in fact, um, if you're going to make me ride with her, I'm going to go home sick. And so you had these environments where sergeants let them go home sick. It was like complicit silence to the behavior of they didn't, they couldn't tolerate us. They could barely work with us. Most of them wouldn't. Um, and if they weren't working with you, they were, you know, trying to hit on you and, you know, and you're a young person. So you're trying to navigate all that stuff. But again, I didn't know what I didn't know other than I thought they were Adam Henry's. That's a code for, you know, another uh, inappropriate word, but, um, <laughs> and, and you just kind of just make your way through it. Um, some would respond to your calls, but yeah, not tell, to really. Tell me about that. You're on the job now. So you're on the job, you're out there, you're trying to do your thing. You're trying to get your sea legs. What is that like when you're responding to calls? So responding to calls is like crazy because you learn all the stuff in the academy and it's all, you know, whatever. But you get out there and you forget to add the people that come with the calls <laughs> and all their emotions and whether they're crazy or they're just hurting or in pain or they're looking for you to help them. I mean, it's just this wide you know, range of things. And now you got to put in your technical skills and your knowledge to whatever it is that you learned in the academy. So you go through a field training program before you're actually out on your own. And my FTOs, they were old timers, okay? Mm -hmm. And they didn't necessarily- uh, Joni, FTO means field training officer for those of you that are out there that aren't um, familiar with it. That's a, just a common term that we use. So, all right, so your yeah. FTOs are, um, are, are, your, are essentially your bosses when you first start. They are like almost like corporals yeah. would be, um, is the best yeah. way for me to put it. Yeah, yeah. So they're evaluating whether or not you're going to be able to make it off a break-in and actually be an officer and, you know, if you're qualified to do all that. So they're constantly evaluating and doing stuff. And I had four of those and three or four of them. I can't remember. Um, some of them felt like two. But they are so like not friendly. Um, there's a hazing that takes place kind of um, to really kind of break you in. And so the first one wasn't that bad, but I learned, you know, how to do uh, collision investigations because that's primarily what we do, but he worked on the special team. So I learned a lot of great skills from him after he got used to having me around. Um, my second one was what I would call uh, mediocre because and I was very disappointed. She was a female and we went around and picked up her dry cleaning most of the time and occasionally went to a call. So I didn't get a whole lot of learning in there. And so my third one was a beast. He had been on for 17 years. Something about that number. I don't know what it is. It's a special number. Johnny. Yeah, 17 years. And he just wrote me like a I don't know. He was on me all the time, all the time, all the time, where it was the one time during that period for break-in that I wanted to quit um, because he had yelled at me. I mean, constantly demeaned me. We'd meet with other officers. He treat me like SH. He treated me poorly. And one night we got back to the office and he was like, you need to get your paperwork done. And I was like, Okay, I'm trying to keep it in because he's been yelling at me all night. And he's like, you just need to get it done for you. Go. Whatever it was he said, I snapped. I mean, I literally snapped. I'm 21 years old. I don't know what a snap is at 21 to somebody who's like in his 40s. But, and I just said, I'm going to go home now. And I literally lived across the street because when I got to that new command, I never wanted to be late. And I was not from the area. So I got an apartment across the street and I go, I'm going home. He goes, you better not leave this building. If you leave this building, you better never come back. And I was like, well, I'm never coming back inside. I didn't say that out loud, but I went home. I was so just upset. And my mother was visiting me and she said, what happened? I told her her words to me were go to sleep, go to sleep, just get some rest. And then we'll talk about it in the morning because I worked a graveyard shift. So it was morning, but for, you know, so oh, I, I went know. to sleep. <laughs> so I went to sleep, got up, 
And she's like, so how do you feel now? I go, I'm embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed that this even happened. Then I'm at home. She goes, so you're going to go back over there <laughs> and you're going to tell them that, but you're also going to tell them how you feel and how you'd like to be treated because you got to remember you're still an adult. He's an adult. You're an adult. You're both police officers, but do it respectfully, but you need to go back. So I went back and we had this conversation, but we had it with the captain who had no idea that this was happening to the extent in which it's happening because it happens, but it was pretty aggressive and it tempered him. It tempered me. And we ended up actually having a really good time towards the tail end of our FTO, but it taught me something about how I needed to change myself because I was sensitive <laughs> because I was 21 and it was just constantly this, but also how to, um, you know, build my own fortitude and mental toughness to be able to not only tolerate what was going on, but to tolerate what would come. Because as you continue to move up in leadership in a male dominated industry, it's going to come at you different ways. So it was building me for what would come. And I greatly appreciate it. I wouldn't have changed anything mm -hmm. um, to go through any of the hazing, go through any of the part where men wouldn't come to my scenes and help me with crashes, wouldn't respond to my pursuits until it was so hairy. They're like, somebody better respond, you know, but it built character. It built, uh, it grew me and it grew me on how to navigate in this field um, to be able to be a good leader later on. Well, we're going to get to that. We have a question in the chat since we're in like the recruit FTO portion of the sh of, mm. uh, of your story. We have a question from Warrior Mike from Warriors to Guardians. He wants to know what would you tell new new recruits looking to make law enforcement a career choice. So, what advice are you giving young folks that are thinking about jumping in the into the frying pan here? Absolutely. Uh, for one, know that it is not um, it's not a career choice where you can leave it in a year. So I know that a lot of young people are sometimes kind of making a decision on careers. So they'll work somewhere a year or two, and then they'll just go to another place a year or two from now and another place. This is really about a profession that will last you your entire career, 30, 35 years, however long you want to work it. And so thinking about the long game when you come into something like policing, to me, is getting a good mentor, getting a bit good coach really having an understanding of the work that you're getting into. Um, if you don't have a background in criminal justice uh, because of your college education, that's fine. I mean, sociology, any degree works, but what you need to do is spend time with somebody who is in law enforcement, go down and maybe do ride-alongs, um, you know, go down and see if you can attend a citizen's academy even and see what police officers do. And once you come on, be open to learning, be open to growing. Don't come in with a closed mindset um, because this is an evolving profession. So when I came on, it was slowly evolving. What I've seen is exponential um, evolution of policing where it's almost like technology, right? Here we are with all of the technology that we use and exponentially when you look at it, it's being compressed more and more. What used to take 20 years or 50 years is now taking two to three years, maybe a year. It's the same thing in policing that it really is evolving in the expectations, um, the technology, what, you know, internally and externally is required of you. But I would encourage you just learn a little bit more about what it, what it is that police officers do versus just jumping in and signing an application and getting in. That's what I did. So I did that because it said they're going to pay me this and I was going to have a retirement and I was going to have benefits. But I think if I would have actually done a ride along, I had, you know, spent time with an officer or any of those things, I would have been more mentally prepared for what I was going into. But I didn't. I, I went in, eyes closed and they got, you know, wide open <laughs> once I was in there. It's tough because it, it's, it's hard to because I think everybody knows that you're going to see some horrible things. You're going to smell horrible things. You're going to uh, run into some really bad people. You're going to run into some really good people that are just in bad circumstances and everything in between. But it's one thing to know it, and it's a completely different story when you are there and you're feeling it and you're being um, and and you and you're in it. Um, I think yeah. that one thing that takes a little time, Johnny, is you start learning how to separate. Somebody who, like, yes, their actions might have been 
technically illegal or, or, or might have committed some sort of violation, but the why behind some of those things, it does matter. Um, you know, a example is shoplifting. So as you know, around the holiday season, shoplifting goes through the roof around like Chris, around like Christmas time in December and uh, late November, because a lot of these people, a lot of these parents, maybe they don't have money, they don't have a job, and but their kids still want and expect Christmas gifts. So you have that. So sometimes you have to add a little context to their to the actions. Like, yes, it's a crime. It is a crime, and they and they do and it does need to be dealt with. But maybe a little compassion when you are um, when you're dealing with these people uh, is called for. Uh, any thoughts on that? No, and I agree. So as a young person. <laughs> I'm, I'm well past any of them coming for me after this. So um, when I was a young person, yes, I would pick up things from the store when I was a kid because I, we couldn't afford to have them, um, you know, whether it be candy or, you know, the little toy thing that you saw or whatever that is. And um, there's many times I would come across, you know, folks that just didn't have, I mean, I remember how many homeless, you know, people I'd come across and, one that just sticks in my head, I remember a gentleman and he had his daughter with them and they were in a shopping cart and they were on the freeway. So that's a violation, right? You can't be on the freeway as a pedestrian, but something in my spirit that particular day, and, and I normally wouldn't arrest pedestrians, you know, you give them a warning, get them off safety. I don't want to come out to a collision now where the pedestrian has been hit, right? Sure don't. But this particular day, I gave them a ride to the bus station. And I put them on a bus. I didn't give them money. They were trying to get to another city, which was another 50, 75 miles or whatever it was. I'm in the Central Valley. And I just got them a bus ticket. Were they walking on the They were in a shop. To that yeah, place? he had his daughter and their stuff like in a shopping cart and pushing them on the right side of the road. Wow. Yeah, it happens all the time, especially in our Central Valley areas and other areas because there's so many on and off ramps. Sure. Um, and they were just going to be pushing themselves. But I, it was the little girl. It was the child that I was like, I, I can't just take you off to the next ramp and be like, hey, don't get back on the freeway, which is a verbal warning. I, I you know, wanted to do that. And so it's just remembering the humanity of people and their circumstance. And I think because I had such a difficult childhood growing up that any of that could still be me. Um, just, you know, life takes us in different directions, which, you know, we don't know how that works, but that doesn't change that those are people um, behind all of those bags, um, you know, behind their circumstance. And so we just got to remember when we're doing our police work to not paint people with this broad brush of, you know, the loudest voices are the ones that we feel are condemning people in policing right now, but they're not, their loud voice isn't everybody's loud voice. Right. In the same way that police officers don't want to be painted with the same brush of Chauvin or anybody else that's doing things that police find absolutely apprehensible, too. It's the same in the community. Don't group people together. See individual people for who they are. And, you know, that's one of the things, um, you know, I think about mostly for me in this profession that I found that my heart was really pulled towards helping people see people, whether internally in the department or externally in the department, because we are so scarred and we have this guarded cynicism and the cumulative trauma that we experience um, throughout the profession from seeing death, from constantly, you know, seeing people who are injured or hurt. And, you know, when we're doing the work, we don't have time to be sensitive in the sense of our own emotions. We have to be about duty. So we're constantly working. So it's tough for us to even acknowledge. And we know there's stigma around mental illness and mental health and all of that for even us in the department. Um, and so for me, one of the things that I was not prepared for when you were talking about people coming on into policing it's not so much as the, uh, you know, are you able to, you know, fight or, you know, go to the ground or do whatever you got to do to survive. No, they train you well to do that. They did not train me well uh, for my mental well-being to deal with death, to see death over and over and over again, because that's not normal for us to see people, you know, in some of the... Um, crime scenes and things that have happened to them. 
And I remember being a graveyard sergeant. I had 11 years on as an officer. I was a graveyard sergeant um, in one of our very busy commands. And so I had probably 12 or 13 years on by then. And we took a lot of fatal incidents, whether they were fatal hit on the road, fatal collisions or fatals. And I remember one month, we were very high that month. I don't know, I can't remember like what the number was, but for us on our graveyard, I knew that it was hitting my team very hard because of the way they were not interacting during briefing. They weren't joking. They weren't, you know, and we had taken four or five kind of consecutively and one had young teenagers, um, you know, out on an evening, it was getting close to prom and they all perished in this collision very tragically, like burned in the car. And you know, as a supervisor, you're just trying to make sure we're getting a lot of things done. But I realized that I had to check on their emotional and mental well-being. And we talked about it. And our briefings were usually at breakfast, you know, on a graveyard when it's the slowest part, three or four o'clock in the morning. And we talk and then offering them services through EAP. But one thing we also forget in leadership is we forget to take about take care of ourselves. And I would go home and I had two young children and my husband at the time was in policing. And I didn't realize that I was experiencing um, depression and I was experiencing uh, being desensitized by a lot of things. I would go home and I would just be numb and I would isolate a lot of things that Dr. Gil Martin talks about um, in his book for emotional survival. And it's just a reminder that when we get in policing for anybody entering it, you need to have an understanding of that too. And for us that are in policing or have done policing, it's okay to be broken. It's okay to not be perfect. And it's okay to ask for help because when we don't and we let it go too long, it creates things that sometimes we can never come back from. Um, and unfortunately, as I moved up in the department, it created situations where I know that people have either lost their lives through suicide or they've lost their lives through losing their families. Well, so, well, John, just if I could jump in real quick. So it's important that you bring that up because um, I guess the good news is that has that, that stigma is going away because I, you know, when I first started, it was probably towards the tail end of the, Hey, just suck it up and keep it to yourself and get out there mm -hmm. and handle your job. And, you know, and it was looked down upon if you uh, if you mentioned anything. So that is changing. And one of the reasons it's changing is because people that are like yourselves that are no longer in this line of work are speaking up and you're advocating for it. And people that are in leadership positions now that were probably, as you would say, boots, when you were coming <laughs> on, they're now, they're now leaders of departments. They still, they value your voice because you're mm -hmm. still in their mind. You're always going to be assistant chief Reddick. And they're like, well, you know, if, if Johnny's saying this, there's something to this. So th it is it is getting better. We're not there yet, not even close, but at least these conversations are happening in most departments. And we are seeing that people are open to getting um, people help when they need it. So thank yeah. you for being yeah, no. because it, I just want to tell you that it's working. What you, you and other people that are doing what you're doing, it is working. People are listening. There is, there is great work being done and, you know, great nonprofits. Um, and also I see that there's also changes being made on how we honor our law enforcement who, you know, commit suicide because it used to be so awkward where organizations, you, you didn't talk about it when it happened. In fact, they didn't even tell you most of the time. Um, and now families can have, you know, services for their loved ones. We can pay you know, respects as, you know, their brothers and sisters in law enforcement. So a lot of things are changing to say that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an acknowledgement, it's an awareness, but now it's becoming action. And that's what's really powerful. And so you're very right, Dean, very right. So transitioning from this, let's fast forward a little bit into your career. So we've uh -oh. talked about, you've talked about your FTO experience. We've talked about you as a young officer. And we've talked about some of your experience as a new sergeant. So let's talk about when you are now transitioning, because a lot of people out there, you might not realize, as you move up the chain in law enforcement, you become less police officer and more politician with each run that you move up, because it, it, your job becomes more administrative and more political. So now you are ascending up the ranks um, from sergeant, I assume you, the next step was lieutenant, and then possibly captain, is that what it was next? 
Yes. So talk to me about the lieutenant captain rank and um, how you how you really saw that more the job is from a more global view. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> again, just to be transparent, my first moves up the rung were because I was looking around and I was like, OK, if they can do it, I sure can do it because uh, they're going to be supervising me. And so that was always kind of I was competitive. So a lot of that was me moving up because I was looking at these people on the sides doing it. But then when I became a supervisor, I understood this powerful thing about being able to have influence and being to help not only the organization and do better policing, but really helping people be better, which were the people that um, were in my, um, you know, under my shift or whatever. So when I wanted to be a manager, a lieutenant, it was a tough decision because I was a young mother. I still had my two kids, uh, you know, my husband at the time, we were balancing shifts, being in policing. Um, and it does become very political. You become them, us versus them. So when you're an officer and a sergeant, you're kind of still the us together. But this management shift really takes you into another stratosphere and you become them because you become part of policy um, and management decisions. And so um, I wasn't quite sure, but there was something always on me uh, that I wanted to, to grow my leadership. And I created something called a career development plan when I was a sergeant. I had learned about it because I studied for the test. <laughs> and when I studied for the test, I learned something. I got knowledge that something nobody ever shared with me about this thing called a career development yeah, plan. Run, run us through that real quick. Yeah. So it is really a plan that helps you create the trajectory of your career. It's almost like your career vision board. And we had it in policy. And so what it did was say, I hadn't, when I came on the department, I didn't have any but a few units of college. So it showed a my career development plan that I wanted to get my AA, I wanted to get my bachelor's, I wanted to get a master's. It talked about my promotion. Where did I want, where did I see myself? Well, I saw myself being a chief. I think I even put on there seeing myself as the commissioner of the department. Um, but how do I get there? What would I need? I need certain training. I need opportunities for assignments. And so that's what this career development plan was that I started building out. But it wasn't just for me, it was for me to have this conversation with my direct um, supervisor every year during my annual performance review so they knew where I was trying to go so they could get me the training. So when I asked for it, it was in my career development plan, but it also started shaping my lens for what I needed to know that I didn't know and how I needed to actually do, do better where I was so that I could be better for who I would serve. And so doing that career development plan or individual uh, development plan or leadership development plan, they're called all kinds of things. They're really worth it because it gave me a vision for where I wanted to go in my career. So I did the lieutenant um, promotional and I, sergeant, I took me three times, Dean, it took me three times to get, to pass that dog on test. But I had no oh. mentors. I had no mentors. I had nothing. So when I did the lieutenants, I did it differently. I got smarter. I found a mentor. They didn't seek me out. I sought them out because I was paying attention. And I got in a study group and I was disciplined. And so instead of being at the bottom of that third test I took, I mean, literally at the bottom, I was now in the middle of this lieutenant's one. And I discovered how networking was important, but having a mentor, but also having structured discipline, readiness for promotion was important. And so I developed study groups starting um, as a sergeant into lieutenant for others to help them see how they could do it better and be more successful. And so um, lieutenant was great. I worked administratively. I also worked in the field. Um, it was hard balanced, but it was a I enjoyed it a lot. I had um, large responsibility and headquarters over the entire state uh, programs for recruitment, community outreach, uh, for marketing. I had multi-million dollar budgets that I oversaw. Um, it was huge. I had a great opportunity. Uh, and then I wanted to be a captain. And I wanted to be a captain because my captain was some of those things I was talking about earlier in the show. And I was like, Okay, I can be a captain. Mm -hmm. um, and so that one gets harder because less people make a list. So I was middle of the list for lieutenant. 
And this process, unbeknownst to me, was different. And it wasn't going to be like the lieutenant's test. But nobody told me. People who had a network that was stronger than mine, they told them. So when I took it the first time, I was like in the fifth rank. And I didn't, I wasn't going to get to promote. So I had to take it again. And it was an assessment center process, which I wasn't familiar with. But I learned. I went and took a class. Um, I paid attention. And I moved from the fifth rank to the first rank. And so I was like, I'm going to be a captain. But then this is where the politics come in, where you were talking about, where your merit and your hard work, because I was doing the work, your merit and your hard work almost don't matter because people are selecting people on the fit. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And before all those other ranks, I was guaranteed a job because I could go to the field. But once you get to captain, it becomes interview based mm -hmm. and you everything above gets interview based. And so I was getting frustrated because how am I in the first rank and people in the third rank, fourth rank, fifth rank, that rank I was in, they're getting jobs over me. And it was very frustrating to go through that. And um, there was a couple of times that I, you know, wanted to lose my head about myself, but I didn't. And I had an opportunity to interview for a job. I did not get the job. They gave it to somebody that was a better fit. But because I showed up and I did my best in that interview, when the job came up again in that division, they asked me if I wanted it. And I said, well, do I need to interview? And they said, well, no, you already interviewed for us for this other job. And I said, well, I didn't get the other job. So I'm thinking my interview wasn't very good. And they're like, no, your interview was fine. And they gave me the political spiel. Do you want this job? And I was like, I want that job. So here's glad the irony. Talk, I'm glad you didn't talk your way out of the job. It sounded like you almost tried to talk your way out of it. Well, because I was like, if they wanted me, they would have picked me the first time. I was having a little bit of attitude. But, but mm. this is the irony in the job. The job that I said yes to was to the captain, to that command where I was an officer, where those men wouldn't ride with me, where the captain at the time would walk down the hallway and look through me. I was now a captain of that command and my picture was going to hang on the wall because that's how they all hang. My picture was going to hang on the wall where theirs hung. And I was so thrilled to be able to go back there and be a different kind of a captain than the one that I experienced. And I, I, it changed my whole, it changed my whole outlook on furthering how I was going to lead and, and be better, not only for myself, but for my people. So Johnny, on, let me, let's stick with that, with that for a little bit. So talk to me about how you received, cause I'm assuming your picture is in this hallway, this special hallway. Um, I used to work at a place that did that. Um, I'm going to assume just going to guess that you were the only face of color that was also a female hanging in this hallway? Uh, yeah, in that particular command of color, there had been one or maybe one, no, two, maybe two female captains before. But that command... How were you received? In that command, I was received fine. They were young. It was a young Bay Area. For people who know the Bay Area in California, um, we had young officers coming on. So it was, you know, multicultural. Everybody's like, you know, doing this thing. But a year and a half later, a year or so later, a year and a half, they wanted me to go to another captain's command not far away. And I didn't want to go. Uh, but they wanted me to go because of my leadership. And this is not, this, I'm trying to be as humble as possible. They knew I was a get it done kind of a person because I like following policy. It keeps everybody safe. It keeps us all protected when we do that. And so they sent me to a command that was out of alignment with policy. They hadn't had a commander in like several months. Why well, was that first? I was their first female captain and first female captain of color in that command in our 80 plus history and I was not received well there at all. In fact, they wanted to undermine me constantly. Um, it was to the point where they were upset at me. They were upset at me because I came in and told them they had to do their job, and we were not going to be cutting corners, and we weren't going to be doing these things, and, and it was a really difficult time because I was trying to change organizational culture, which we know is deep rooted, right? That, that is, and yeah, that's like trying to turn around an oil tanker in a puddle. 
And we had a lot of ethical issues that were taking place. So there was like misconduct investigations and all kinds of things. And on top of that, we ended up having a line of duty death while I was there. And it was probably the most difficult experience in, in my entire career, of course. I mean, but it was so difficult to see so many people in pain because of that incident. It was Can you talk a little bit about that? Can you bring us, if you're comfortable, bring us um, I mean, I want to be very sensitive to family, sure. sensitive to, um, but it was such a sudden, and it, he was murdered. He was murdered uh, morning during a busy commute, just, you know, happened suddenly, right? And it devastated the entire command. And what I want to say is the resilience of, you know, of course, the officers and people in the command. But I was having difficulties with a um, echelon of people prior to this. So that became exacerbated. And one of the things I had to do, um, and it was really hard for me to do it because I was also broken. Again, this is back to leaders who are broken. It's okay to be not okay. But Sometimes we don't get it till it's a little later on. One of the reps from the association had made a suggestion that, well, why don't you give them an opportunity to vent? Um, because we know a lot of these comes, comes with a lot of emotions, right? When we have line of duty deaths. And I said, I said, absolutely. I said, there's only one caveat. They need to be as respectful as they can because there's other people in the room that are hurting, but they may not be hurting like they are for whatever this is they want to do. So I gave them an opportunity to let me have it, all that they wanted to let me have. And the experience was so powerful. It was palpable in the room on the pain they had for not only the loss and, and their anger and their frustration because they don't understand. And, you know, there's so many things taking place in a command during this. And if they don't sure. see you or they don't see sergeants, they don't see the U's and they don't see other people. They're like, where is everybody? What's everybody doing? But also they had this opportunity to see each other because they were angry with each other, some of them in the room. Um, and then also past pains that they had where they felt like they were neglected by management in there. They had nothing to do, nothing to do with our line of duty death, nothing. It had to do with things that they felt that they had been overlooked, not treated fairly, you know, nobody listened to them. And that 45 minutes of taking arrows on my armor ended up really changing a lot of things in the command moving forward. And so I say this to leaders who are listening, that oftentimes we don't want to do some of that difficult conversation, which is about supply the why, but the difficult conversations that we can have with our own people and we can let our armor down just enough to even listen, um, but then to maybe even try to come back with some solutions or some apologies or you know how to make it better. Man, that just goes a million miles when we do that, when we stop and see our people and they know that they're valued or they know that they're being listened to. So what the one thing that kept resonating over and over out of that conversation was how they felt like division, which is, you know, our headquarters kind of was overlooking them and nobody got promoted when they took the test. So my testimony of how many times I had to take a test and how many times I've been overlooked kind of resonated with them. But what I did is I built a structured study, promotional study program for them. And I tell you, the people that participated in that, I think eight out of 10 of them made the list. And now they do that for each other. And that's really powerful. Can I, I mean, can I just jump in about the power of that? I want to highlight that. And I want to bring everybody along, make sure we're all hearing this together. So by you having just a little bit of moral courage, and because you know <laughs> that's what it comes down to. It's moral courage that, that you need in order to sit and have the ability to take some feedback that's not always going to be all roses and sunshine. But by you doing that, you built up, I'm going to guess, an amazing amount of credibility among these people. You were able to share your story, which it sounds to me, obviously, they didn't know about your promotional um, uh, woes and how you had uh, you missed on the test and you keep trying. And you really made yourself human to them. 
it became more than just the stars or whatever you have on your collar. And you were a person with real issues, with real problems. And you also gained a ton of credibility by letting them vent and, and, and giving them a, a safe platform to be heard with. Yeah. And for the ones that still wanted to be, you know, um, crunchy <laughs> or discontent, that was them. But the rest of the, the rest of that started to erode away. And then, you know, I had a segment of people cause my command was like about 130 people when I was a captain there, only 30 or so people wanted to be in that room to be a part of that barbecuing, um, you know, experience. And out of that, it broke off to even less that wanted to stay really resistant to change because that was really what it was about. They didn't want to change. They wanted to keep doing things the way they were doing it. Um, but I didn't have to work that hard anymore because others were now peer checking, right? And that kind of quiets the noise. So that's that thing we talk about not being complicit and being silent, but actually speaking in all kinds of ways creates a change um, in organizational culture and how things are done. So I was greatly appreciative um, for the suggestion by the association rep. Um, and I was greatly appreciative for those senior officers who took on some of those other officers after we had that experience, like, okay, it's time out, no more for this. Um, and, let's move on. And, and, that, and that's beautiful. And, and folks, just to bring you up to speed. So this is why I was a little late, little late starting the show, because this is exactly what we were talking about backstage before we went live was about this exact scenario, having people that are below your rank or having people that um, have your back and they cover your blind spots as a leader. Uh, I know that as a sergeant, obviously I'm nowhere near where you were. I rely on certain patrolmen to come knock on the door. And if there's something that I say or do and it's misconstrued or something, uh, a message that I have to deliver that is um, not the best or not the greatest message, they come on and they might say, hey, listen, I know you said this and I know what you meant, but maybe if you circle back and say this or add that, it would be better received. And I can't tell you how thankful I am for the people that have done that and continue to do that for me. Because again, I'm not going to, you can't save everybody in the room. You can't, you can't get everybody to buy into the room. That's impossible. But it's the people on the fence that you can, that you, that you're fighting for the people that, you know, need a gentle pull or a shove in one direction or the other and having people that are willing to do that for you is so important, but it only happens if you have the moral courage to hear them out and maybe hear something that might not be the most wonderful uh, thing in the world. Absolutely. It's a level of humility too, because um, I don't know everything. Um, my job is to be responsible for everything as I promote, but it doesn't mean that I know everything. And so we take in things from all over. So, you know, like you said, I remember being that new sergeant. And I, even though I was 11 years as an officer, going back to the field as a sergeant, um, I checked in with my senior officers and I was like, hey, so what do you guys think? Okay, let's talk about it. I didn't come in with, this is what we're gonna do. And that just went over so much better than when we come in and we try to, you know, use our rank to make decisions versus using good judgment to say, I'm not really sure, but I'd love to hear from you because you guys are doing this stuff a lot more than I was doing it, right? And taking in all this different information. It just makes us better leaders when we're more open to new ideas, open to others' ideas. And it doesn't make us weak. Doesn't mean that we're, you know, not the best sergeant, lieutenant, captain. It just means that we're like real people who are taking everything into consideration. And, I would make um, the argument that it makes you stronger, actually, Johnny. I yeah, think it shows yeah. a level of strength and 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 confidence for you to be able to say, "Hey, listen, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all." The but answers. but Dean, but Dean, how many? But how many still don't listen to people, and they go out and they do stuff, and you're just like, "Did you talk to anybody?" <laughs> Like, come on. <laughs> you know, that's why you're laughing. So, I, I, I mean, I am. I am because it's one of those things. I just don't understand it. I mean, let's let's step away from police work for a while. Let's look at the business world. Some of the greatest business minds of our time. They hire people that are experts in certain areas because they admit that, hey, listen, I, I have this vision. And I want to implement this vision, but I don't have all the expertise in all the different areas in order to make this um, this 
billion dollar company go to where it needs to go. So I'm going to hire people and I'm going to actually listen to those people when they are get, advising me about this area of expertise. And it's amazing that, um, that in law enforcement, that, that doesn't happen more often. And, um, it's, it, it's a shame, but again, people like yourselves that are retired, that have been there and done that. And we're talking about transforming from the old school thinking and policing, and we're moving to more of a new school thought process the more people like yourselves come on into these platforms and you tell people, listen, this is what we should have done before. And I'm telling you now that I'm out of the line of work and I can look at it, you know, with a 360 degree view, this needs to happen. We need more of this. We need more collaboration within our building. We need to listen to people just because somebody doesn't have a certain rank doesn't mean that they don't have value or good ideas. So we need I mean, do people, I hate to interrupt you, but do people actually stop to look to see where our people come from when they come into the department? Because if you did, it would blow your mind to know that a lot of people come into law enforcement with prior life experience, which mm -hmm. means they've worked all kinds of jobs. They have college experience in ways that we don't even think about. And they have gifts and talents that we don't even tap into because we need them to be this kind of a police officer. Yeah. That's what we think. When if we really tapped into all their gifts and talents that they have and their expertise and their lived experience, we'd be blown away with the efficiencies, the changes in how we, you know, do technology, how we respond, you know, how we've been doing something this way for a long time suddenly can shift and change to something better. But we we don't tap into that. We don't tap into that at all. I agree. I mean, there's people in this line of work, at least in where I am with with, with business degrees, people with finance backgrounds. Why in the world wouldn't you be bringing these people on to help you with your budgeting, to help you with your with your long term plans? It it just it just um I don't understand it. It um it's 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 a very so your so your thing with old school policing in in to this new policing. Mm -hmm. So I know I don't know how much time we have on our show. Do we, we have, have a few minutes? We, we only have about three minutes left, so you got to wrap this up in about sixty seconds. So I'm just going to say this mm -hmm. whole thing is we really have to rethink how we do policing and the type of people that we bring on, but allowing ourselves to flatten the organization more. And I know people are like, "What does that mean? We're hierarchical, you know? It's this whole paradigm." I'm like, "That paradigm needs to be broken." If we want to really have change and, and do the good work that we've been talking about at all the committees and all the tables and all the stuff, you have to flatten the organization so that everybody has these opportunities. But right now, the way we do it, when we put it in this hierarchy, it creates a funnel which gets clogged up with people who don't retire, people who don't move along, so that people down here don't get opportunities. But if we flatten it, it's not just even a promotional piece. It's an ability to have access piece that you could do that. So that um, access is everything. Mm -hmm. Direct access. So you don't have to have your message filtered as you pass it up the chain. Yes. Maybe somebody's jealous. Maybe somebody wants to take your idea and make it their own. Like there's all these little weird roadblocks that people that aren't. Uh, and again, it's not just police work. I'm sure that happens everywhere. But um, but a, a flatter organization definitely increases the buy-in. Johnny, we got about two minutes left. What are your shout outs? In about 60 seconds, give us some of your projects and how can people link up with you and stay connected with you? You know what? I there's you know, people can link up with me. My name is Johnny Reddick. You can find me by just Googling that. Um, JL Consulting Solutions. But I just want people to really think about, you know, if you don't see everyone, you don't see anyone. And that is in everything that we do. And that is so important, whether we are leadership building, whether we are promotional readiness building, whether we're talking about organizational cultures, it doesn't have to be in policing, it can be in corporate, it can be in life, but we just need to see each other and we need to see everyone. I mean, that is what connects us to our humanity and that's what I'm most passionate about. And so my projects really, uh, I think we talked about them and touched them on them, but I don't, I don't have anything that I'm pushing. I'm just pushing for excellence and for us to build better leaders. It's, it's amazing and you're doing it and clearly it's working because here I am in New England you are on the west coast and because of us both seeking to understand and trying to make things better we were able to uh to connect through some mutual contacts so um keep doing what you're doing keep getting out there you're an amazing guest and you have an amazing story and people need to hear this so thank Johnny, you. Johnny thank you so much um 
can I tell people you're on LinkedIn too? Do you mind? Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. I'm on LinkedIn. So Johnny's on LinkedIn, which is how we've connected and, and done a lot. I strongly suggest people get on there and you connect with Johnny and a lot of other people that are out there being business um, uh, difference makers out there. So folks, that's going to do it for us tonight. It's been another amazing episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply of the Why. If you like the content, please look at the bottom of the screen. Please like, share, and follow us on all your favorite social media platforms. We also have podcasts available on all the big podcast platforms. Let people know what we're doing here. We're trying to change things with one difficult conversation at a time. And when we have wonderful people like Johnny on the show, it's, it's, uh, it's going to happen and we're making a difference. So we'll catch everybody next week for the next episode of Difficult Conversations. Good night. And Good hashtag night. Supply the Why. <laughs>